Okay, let's talk about your next patient. Oh, sure. This is a 72-year-old gentleman with metastatic colon cancer. He initially presented in January 2006 with constipation and uh, stool that was positive for occult blood. Of note, in 2003, so three years earlier, he had a negative colonoscopy. In 2006, when he presented, a repeat colonoscopy revealed a lesion in the sigmoid colon. A preoperative evaluation was negative for metastatic disease, and he had a sigmoid colectomy and anastomosis. The pathology revealed a stage 3C colon cancer. It was a T3N2 M0, 6.4 centimeters, high grade, and it went through the colonic wall, and there was inherent omentum. Lymphatic invasion was present, and 5 of 11 resected lymph nodes were positive for metastatic disease. Before you go on, John, what do you think about this in terms of this, you know, having a, quote, negative colonoscopy and three years later having a pretty advanced lesion? We're right in the same place. I mean, it's one of two answers. The GI guy missed it, or it's different biology. And we are recognizing, we talked a little bit about this with him today, we're recognizing this new biology these might be the MSI high patients, for example, and the non-polyp or quick-to-turn cancers. Now, that's not exclusive. We know that the MSSs can do this, but this may be that biology, and it may be something worth checking even in this guy now, as you'll hear, because there may be some new therapeutics that are targeting this subgroup of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, and certainly the MSI may factor into adjuvant decision-making even today. So what happened? This was in 2006. He actually sought several second opinions with the recommendation that he be treated with adjuvant Folfox. He was actually considering the trial of the adjuvant Folfox with or without bevacizumab, but at that time, he declined to participate in the trial, and we actually spent some time talking about that and his reasonings behind that. What did he say? John? Well, you know, he was perfectly fine with participating in clinical trials, but it would have required that he go to another oncologist. And believe me, after having visited Dr. Sabas' office, I don't want to go to another oncologist ever again. <laughs> it's just a fabulous environment, and the staff was incredible. And the nurturing, the patient-centric aspects very much made me jealous and gave me a perspective on different walks of life, if you will, in cancer medicine. And these guys are really doing it right. And he was sitting there thinking, well, why would I go up to the Farber or some other place every two weeks, not knowing that this treatment was going to help or not? So he was willing to participate and understood the role of participation. But in the end, it was a convenience issue and really the nurturing that he got at home base. Fascinating. So what was the next step, Kurt? So we treated him. He did fine. He had some residual peripheral neuropathy. And two years later, he started to develop fatigue. He said, I felt like I did when I initially presented with the cancer. At that time, we restaged him. He had uh, pulmonary hyalur lymphadenopathy, multiple retroperitoneal lymph nodes. We actually rebiopsied him confirmed that he had residual disease. We talked about multiple different treatments, and he really was not happy about wearing the pump again. And we treated him with capecitabine, bevacizumab, and oxaliplatin. 
Before you go on, because you know, I've heard a couple times now this issue of the pump. John, where are you in terms of 5-FU versus capecitabine? I mean, we talked in terms of chemo radiation with rectal cancer. What about capecitabine in terms of combining it with oxali and Bev and Fulfiri and Cetuximab? Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable with doing that routinely. I almost always will offer that as a choice to patients. I present the pump as a standard of care today. I describe it in detail. Remembering that switching over to capecitabine doesn't necessarily lose the need for some sort of central venous access. Still handy devices to have, whether you're using oral or pump. But nonetheless, it's routine for us. Now, the question always becomes one of dose. I really do not like the Q3 week dosing of either oxaliplatin or arenatecan. And yet the capecitabine dosing that we've all, you know, grown to know and hate is this two week on, one week off strategy, which is acceptable and which has all the published data on it. And if you dose reduce is okay. You know, the breast doctors have already sort of adopted a week on, week off strategy. I tend to go a little differently in my strategy. I go back to a randomized phase two trial that actually was done many years ago before Zolota capecitabine was approved, where they randomized patients between the two-on-one-off schedule and dose that we know now, a lower two-on-one-off with leucovorin, and then a prolonged dosing, actually it was 625 per meter, continuous dosing, BID continuously. And it turns out that all three of those doses had identical response rates, and the continuous dosing, in fact, had the lowest side effects. For we old oncologists, we remember continuous, continuous 5-FU, where we'd hook them up to pumps and let them ride, and it was very well tolerated and, you know, easy on the bone marrow and all of this. Well, in my opinion, that's what that mimics. So I am doing a lot of that even in combination. Now, That's easier said in the metastatic setting, harder said in the adjuvant setting where we're unsure about dose intensity and whether or not cutting back or modifying those doses will maintain the benefit, although my personal bias is that it will. Long answer to, I think it's fine. The risk, though, is underdosing, and I think a lot of U.S. oncologists underdose. I see a lot of 500 BID in patients who are completely asymptomatic, well, I think that's probably a subtherapeutic dose. You want to look for hand, foot. And by the way, one of the nice little neat biomarkers, particularly for continuous Zolota dosing, capecitabine dosing, is MCV. You'll see very elevated MCVs in the 110, 115 range. It probably is an antifolic acid mechanism, but we've published some data on that as sort of an indirect effect of some biologic activity in the folic acid pathways with that. Wow, that is fascinating. So where are things right now with him, Kurt? Okay, well, we treated him, and after four cycles, he really had a very significant response, more than 50%. After eight cycles, his disease was stable. And at that point, we had the conversation about where we go, what we do. He really liked the Zolota, had no problem with that, was less happy to have the oxaliplatin and the bevacizumab. Because he was stable at that point, I took him off those, and I put him on capecitabine two weeks on, one week off, and we have been running with that, and he's now had a total of 26 cycles of Zolota. 
during this course, his CEA has gone up very slightly from like 2.4 to 2.6, now to 3. At one point, some of the lymph nodes were slightly enlarged. We didn't panic. We just repeated it. They went down. And the discussion that we had with him was, how long do you keep up the Zolota? When do you change? What do you add to it? Is there perhaps a role of stopping it? And that was the discussion that we had with this gentleman and his wife. And can you talk more about sort of how you present the pros and cons and what you're thinking? Sure. In a sense, he was an interesting guy, very forthright, basically saying, I am doing great. I am feeling well. I don't even know that I'm taking anything. So I'm very happy to keep on what I'm doing. He was a salesman. When we had the discussion regarding the bevacizumab and the oxaliplatin, he really didn't like the infusion. He didn't like having to come and sit. He was starting to get some neuropathy. And to some extent, although he didn't exhibit it today, I think he had sort of reached his tolerance for those kinds of interventions. But because he had a good experience with the capecitabine, he said, I'm certainly willing to continue that. And so far, it's been a wonderful horse to be on. Yeah, kind of thinking the shades of breast cancer here, Kurt. Yeah, I mean, and I think it was interesting. John talked a bit about whether the difference between continuously treating people versus stopping them, that with a guy like this, he might have done just as well if we didn't treat him, but this way we get to pat ourselves on the back, that what we're doing is terrific and we're doing him great favors. Fortunately, because he tolerated it so well, it's not an inconvenience and very much fits in with his lifestyle. Any other comments, John? Yeah, so I contrast this guy to my Washington lawyer patient, okay? My Washington, 72-year-old Washington lawyer patient is telling me, go in there and take these lymph nodes out. Just get them out of there, right? And doesn't want any sort of question. He wants to know that they're Mets. He wants them out of there right now. And frankly, we have been doing some of this. And you could argue that's totally insane. But if these Mets were in his liver we'd be all over them. If they were in his lungs, we'd be all over them. But these are midline adenopathy. And there clearly is a colon patient like this that stays nodal. And so the question is, can you capitalize more on these by doing some sort of surgical resections? I asked him, would he ever do more surgery? And he clearly, that was the worst experience of his life and said, I don't care, I'll die first before anybody gets to do more surgery on me. So at least in this guy... He was not considering it. So you could say, well, is it rational to do this? Well, there's nothing written down about going after these kinds of abdominal lesions or even chest lesions. But quite honestly, if this were me, I'd consider that. And so I often take care of my patients in the same way of saying, well, I know chemo won't cure me, but should we risk that? And as surgeons have gotten better at these lower invasive techniques and as PET scans have been good at help guide us. That is an envelope pushing approach. In this guy though, you know, I think the maintenance approach is good. Leave everything as it is, wait and see what happens, and then maybe revisit some of these more aggressive approaches when he progresses. It's interesting, you know, we've had this interest in trying to find out how often patients say to docs, what would you do if it were you or somebody in your family, Kurt? And we hear actually that patients ask that a lot. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think it is. And I think the first thing I tell people is that as a doctor, if we were taking care of a family member of myself, you'd be kind of a fool to be doing that. And the very best thing I would do is to find a really good doctor to take care of them. 
But that being said, I think it is important to talk about perspective. And I will say to people, this is something I would recommend to a family member or I wouldn't. And more importantly, these are the reasons. And the other thing I tell them is, you know, what's a right decision for you is perhaps not the right decision for the guy sitting next to you who has exactly the same disease. We ask a lot of our patients. We give them all this information and then essentially dump it in their lap. We're going to teach you colon cancer oncology in 30 minutes, give you a brochure or two, and then send you on your way and ask you to tell us what you want to do. And I think it is a lot to put on patients. And our sort of shift from paternalistic medicine to partnerships certainly generates this. And our patients expect these kinds of discussions. But I honestly believe that's also the, look, I don't know. You're the doctor. What should I do? And in some ways, the question comes back to not only, well, it's trust. I think that's correct. But how do you synthesize this? And the only way to pin you down, if you will, is to put it in your own corner in your own house. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, about our own personal decision-making in cancer, you know, participation in clinical trials and decision-making and the like. And it is very different when the gun's pointed at you. And you do sort of push back to your doctor and say, come on, I'm confused. What should I do? How should I handle this? We sometimes don't want that responsibility, quite honestly. In our litigious environment, we don't want to write down that this is what you should do. We write down these are the choices, and you picked this, so then it's still your fault if something doesn't go right. So we have to balance those. One of the other things that we had talked about, maybe another way of looking at what you're asking is, you know, when patients have gone back and forth and I've said, well, we can do this. And they said, well, I don't want to do that. And I said, that's fine. And then we can do this. Well, I don't want to do that. And we go back and forth. And sometimes I've said, what is the answer that you're looking for? And it's like so many things. When you ask what a seemingly silly or straightforward question, you get answers that you don't expect at all. And there have been times that people will say, I don't want to feel the responsibility to make the decision for me. Or sometimes people will say, I really don't want treatment, but I want you to tell me I don't want treatment. 